Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of October 28th, 2019. And this is our final weekly episode of the 2019 season. We have just... Two more episodes after this one, which we will recap the happenings at the GM meetings, which will occur in mid-November, and we'll recap the activity, hopefully some activity, in mid-December at baseball's winter meeting. So what are we going to talk about on this episode, the final weekly show of 2019? Well, we will be reviewing the White Sox efforts in 2019 season and sharing the final results from our Sox Machine Season Review Survey discussing the coaching staff and the front office. As you can imagine, the results are not going to be positive. But as we found out this week during the Sox Machine Offseason Plan Project, overwhelmingly positive results that the White Sox could be more active this offseason. There were a lot of great ideas on how the White Sox could tackle the roster issues during this offseason, and I've invited a few of you to join us later in the show to share their free agent targets and trade ideas. In the end of the show, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. The offseason starts five days after the World Series, and the Houston Astros and the Washington Nationals are going to be taking the series back to Houston for Game 6 on Tuesday. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. How is married life treating you? It really isn't that much different from pre-married life, which I think is ultimately good. That's my initial report. I've gotten a lot of uh, uh, feedback on hypoallergenic dogs, so thanks for that. 
I'm glad that you're doing the research. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, man. But <laughs> no, was, right. was the wedding good, though? It, it looked like it was a lot of fun. You you sent the picture about the tent, and then you, your beer list was phenomenal. Yeah, that was uh, that was my father-in-law, certified beer judge, uh, co-owner of a brewery. Uh, he did his research. He had his home brewing club in Alaska get together, get as many Omegang beers. Uh, the wedding was at Omegang uh, Brewery in Cooperstown. Uh, he, he and his uh, cohorts got together as many Omegang beers as they could find in Alaska. Did a, a formal tasting with uh, a spreadsheet, uh, taking notes and everything like that <laughs> uh, from the available list. You know, su- uh, selected the best ones they can find and tried to balance the list out as best as possible. And I think there was one late switch to make, but otherwise, uh, yeah, it was a really impressive beer list. The lightest hitting one was, I think, 6.1%. A uh, couple challenge. One one was ten percent. One was challenging ten percent. So, uh, yeah, it was a it was a pretty stacked beer list. But no, it, everything went well. The weather was like the only good weather day we had in six days, and happened to be the perfect day. Everything went pretty smoothly. Uh, there's a lot more to do on the bride side than my side. I, I went to the driving range in the morning, and then actually <laughs> showed up there at uh, two p.m. and and had a uh, you know pretty relaxing rest of the time. But no, it was it was really. Really nice, uh, and it's always nice to see everybody come out to New York and and be there for you. That's really, you know, as, as much planning goes into it and as much, uh, you know, stress and such, it's nice that, uh, you know, family and friends show up. Well, that is terrific. I'm very happy for you. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. And I, pre- and I appreciated all the uh, congratulations and, and well, warm wishes from uh, from listeners and, and readers and White Sox Twitter. Really appreciated it. So... The World Series and back to baseball for this World Series, you know, for us being a weekly show and mostly focusing on the White Sox, there have been some big off the field distractions with this World Series leading to the firing Mm -hmm. of the assistant general manager for the Houston Astros uh, and the Astros public relations nightmare and and how they completely mishandled that entire situation from the very beginning. And the Nationals winning the first two games on the road against Garrett Cole and Justin Verlander, which was an unthinkable task. But the Astros went to D.C. in a hole. The off-field distractions uh, surrounding the team. But the -the on-the-field product has really pulled through. And here we are. And the Astros have won all three games in D.C. Uh, So the home team has yet to win a game in this series, which is bizarre. And now both teams head to Houston for game six with the Astros having a three games to two advantage. And Tuesday's matchup is Justin Verlander against Steven Strasburg. And I think in an elimination game, these are the starting pitchers both teams want on the mound, Jim, with the season on the line. Yeah, it's just a shame that Max Scherzer was scratched. I think he had some kind of neck back spasm issues, had trouble getting out of bed. Had tr- yeah, really couldn't move uh, half his body when it came to uh, you know, when he's answering questions from pro- reporters. He's basically swiveling his entire torso because he couldn't like move naturally. So, you know, nobody is questioning the amount of pain he's under and, and inability to pitch. But I think it really did change the tenor of the series. Even though you know right now uh, you know whether it was Scherzer or anybody else, they're not scoring runs for their starting pitchers. So that doesn't matter. But yeah, it's just been, I guess it's been kind of a strange series, but also the games themselves have seemed like they've been decided relatively early. 
Um, yeah, there really hasn't been a lot of back and forth and, and uh, mid to late inning tension. Uh, and I, I think that's really the, uh, the biggest drag on the series is that, you know, you have these games kind of early outbursts really aren't answered. And then, uh, you know, they end up lasting four hours anyway. Yeah, the, it seems like it's been decided within the first four innings. Yeah. Now, I've been feeling that Washington has been playing with house money since winning the wildcard game against Milwaukee. Because, again, the Brewers are up 3 nothing, And Josh Hader's coming into the game. You would think, hey, the Brewers are going to lock this down and they're going to move forward. And the Nationals, again, can't win a postseason game. Um, but here they are in the World Series, and even if they do lose this World Series, I think Nationals fans should be proud of the team finally making it over the hump, winning the National League pennant, and appearing in the World Series. But I do have to wonder, Jim, it's got to be a tough pill to swallow for any team to win the first two games of the series and then losing the grip and the hold on the series to possibly losing the next four games and being eliminated. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> I've I've seen this a lot with Joe Girardi getting hired. It's not what you want. That was his his uh, response to any kind of bad injury news or bad <laughs> result. Just it's not what you want, and and that would be not what you want. But uh, yeah, it's it's I I think with the Nationals, I think with the way right now the games are shaped as as we talked about with you know these early leads and such, there isn't much in the way of like game to game heartbreak to where you feel like, oh, this game was ours and, and the series is ours. I think the one decision that they might regret, at least uh, to this point, is letting Anibal Sanchez hit for himself um, You know, with the runners in second and third. And I think it was runners in second and third and one out in the bottom of the fourth. So it would have been the fifth inning. You know, they, they didn't want to go to the bullpen that soon, but it wasn't ridiculously early either. Uh, and Dave Martinez let him hit for himself, tried to like poke a bunt fair for a safety squeeze, couldn't do it, struck out, and... They didn't get the run home. They didn't tie the game, and the Astros ended up pulling away. And uh, you know, based on the way the rest of the game unfolded, maybe that run doesn't matter anyway. Maybe the Astros pull away just the same. But really, that's the only thing when it comes to decisions. And and I, I guess uh, unless you count Scherzer, but you know, he's not scoring runs for the team right now either. Um, you know, that where you can point to it and say like, this is uh, where it all fell apart. I think it's just the Astros right now getting back to out talenting the opposition and. Uh, showing why they are in contention for like one of the best built teams in maybe major league history. Do you think we go to game seven? Uh, I think so. I think Verlander's gettable just because of the homers he allows. Hmm. Uh, I think, uh, okay. you know, it should, should, you know, maybe if it was Cole, you know, maybe if Verlander won this game and then Cole is on the mound for elimination, I don't think that you beat him twice in the series, but with Verlander, given the homer problem, given that the, uh, given that Nationals can hit them, given that Strasburg is just as tough, um, I, I think they can get it to seven. And game seven most likely will be Zach Granke for the Houston Astros on the mound uh, against maybe, if he's feeling better, Max Scherzer. That would still be a fantastic pitching matchup to decide on the world champion uh, as far as the team that wins the World Series between the Astros and the Nationals. I don't think it'll get to seven. I, I think... The Astros will close up shop in game six of the series, but it would be kind of fascinating if the Nationals were to win game six and seven and no home team (laughs) won a game during the World Series. Yeah, I don't know if that's ever happened before, (laughs) Uh, but I do love chaos. So we'll see what happens. But I got a feeling this series is over on Tuesday, which once that happens, the countdown begins because after the World Series, the five-day period begins in which teams can negotiate 
with their pending free agents before free agency starts. This would be the time to hear about a contract extension with Jose Abreu unless something has changed on either side, meaning Jose Abreu has a change of heart or the White Sox front office has a change of heart. So by next Monday or Tuesday, depending if the series goes to seven games, we'll know if Jose Abreu has a new deal with the Chicago White Sox or Jose Abreu is officially a free agent, which the optics of that happening would be interesting in my opinion. So Jim, we thought maybe something would be announced the last weekend of the season. That didn't happen. Here we are at the end of October and still nothing has been announced. Will we finally hear about a new deal for Jose Abreu next week? Uh, I, I guess I would say... No, I mean, I, I would, you know, I want to say 50 50. That's a cop out. I would maybe say 40 60. Uh, that's more likely that nothing is announced right away. Just the way that Rick Hahn, uh, yeah, he, I think he did, um, seed the point that, uh, both Abreu and what Abreu said about Jerry Reinsdorf, <laughs> both of them have put themselves out there as only as wanting to get this deal done no matter what. Uh, and, and Hahn said that it was, you know, neither one would be, uh, uh, what you would uh, show in uh, a class on negotiating in business school. Uh, but, it, you know, Han also mentioned that Paul Konerko went to free agency uh, both times. He was a free agent with the White Sox, and uh, one time was really lured. You know, I, I think Baltimore had the most competitive offer, and Arizona was also there. Um, but the White Sox, you know, he came back to the White Sox. They found a way to get the deal done. And um, so so it seems like that's possible, uh, that, that it could be done. I, I think with, uh, you know, Abreu being in a different market than Canerco was, where 30-something first basemen aren't as appreciated, um, or, or teams think that they can kind of get that production elsewhere, aren't really willing to take the risk, I don't think there's that much of a risk of teams swooping in and, and delivering like a killer offer to Abreu that just completely blows up their budget and everything they intended. So, yeah, I guess it's low risk if it goes beyond the five-day period. I assume something will get done, but when Han dropped Canerco, it seemed like, uh, you know, maybe the five-day period isn't like a, a, a hard deadline or, or signals anything either way. Yeah, I could see where the White Sox have a deal in mind that they are comfortable signing with Jose Abreu, but if Jose Abreu during this five-day period says that it's not good enough, then I could see where Rakan will tell Jose Abreu, you know what? Test free agency. How about you go talk to some other teams, get some offers, and you come back to me and let me know on what you are getting. And we'll can negotiate to see if we are interested in beating out any of those offers to bring you back. Yeah, the qualifying offer, I think, will be the the biggest part. Yeah, the one year 17.8 million, correct? Oh, it is 17.8, yes. But it did go down, yeah. So... 17.8, that'd be like 1.8 million more than he made this year. Um, and it seems like Abreu would be dumb to turn that down, especially since that would kill, like, you know, I don't think teams would want to give up a draft pick for him for any kind of meaningful amount of money. But uh, And one year would be, I think, fine for the White Sox at this point, uh, going year to year. I think that's maybe what they would want. <laughs> so uh, that could be kind of telling, I think, when you get to the qualifying offer parts. I think if he goes to the free agent market without a qualifying offer, I think his market would uh, be radically transformed. Or at least more teams would be interested in going two to three years with them, and maybe the dollars are uh, more competitive around the league. See, I would find that to be really interesting if next week we hear that the White Sox and Jose Abreu don't have a contract extension in place, but the White Sox 
have placed a qualifying offer on Jose Abreu. I'd be really intrigued to see what happens next. Because I have to imagine from Jose Abreu's side, for all the work that he's put in these last six seasons and for all the bad teams that he's had to carry, that, I don't know, do you feel like, again, you you never really want to think about how another person is feeling, but from that, that point of view, as far as on that side of the table, do you think, you know, would you be slighted, Jim, if you were in his shoes? Uh, I mean, I think the one thing that uh, I guess makes it not insulting is that it does represent a raise uh, year, after, year over year. So he would have that going for him. That would probably be, you know, when you look at 17.8 million, I think he'd be lucky to get that average annual value in a contract. So if he's, yeah, if he really wants years more than, um, if he, if he wants years more than anything else, then maybe it's insulting. But when it comes to the deal and, you know, if he has, uh, you know, if, if he comes back on a one year deal for 17.8 million and uh, that's a raise over his last year and he has a better year than he had and uh, is, you know, uh, I guess set himself up for another strong, I guess, uh, you know, first base DH contract. Uh, maybe it doesn't hurt him, maybe it even helps him a little bit because he can't get the qualifying offer again. So it wouldn't seem to be, I guess, as, uh, I guess, punitive a decision from the White Sox to a break as it might be with other free agents. Got it. Well, that's going to be the most pressing decision the White Sox have for the five-day period, as I'm not expecting, Jim, any other extensions like with Ivan Nova or John Jay, and I'm expecting the White Sox to decline the option of Wellington Castillo. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think with the... Maybe the qualifying offer is the one thing that maybe changes the, or I guess accelerates the timeline for for uh, uh, the White Sox and Abreu, just because you know, I imagine if he gets the qualifying offer, he'll take it. So whether, you know, that's, I guess, the easy decision, I think, you know, it's probably within, let me see, I'm just doing the math based on last year's, probably around like November 10th, you would have to accept it. Um, that would be... Yeah, I think in that time, that's when they might decide, you know, going more than one year and going two years plus options or whatever. And that's right around when Rick Hahn has to start attending the GM meetings where they discuss the new rules and everything heading into the offseason. So something we're going to know for certain, I think soon. How soon? We'll see. I figured something would have been announced already. Uh, but that hasn't been the case, and hopefully there is some closure on the situation between Jose Abreu and the Chicago White Sox for the 2020 season with the offseason plans. I think the vast majority of them have Jose Abreu coming back to the White Sox because it's been assumed that will happen, but we'll see on what the final resolution is. Now, another piece of news that came out over the weekend involving the Chicago White Sox, and this is from the Chicago Tribune. The Chicago White Sox reported to the FBI a person has made close to $1 million in selling White Sox tickets on StubHub. His name is Bruce Lee. Yes, Bruce Lee. And the White Sox are claiming he sold complimentary tickets to White Sox games on StubHub. And from 2016 to 2018, Lee sold 35,000 tickets. In 2018 alone, he sold 11,000 White Sox tickets on the site, which was 10,871 more than his closest competitor. 
<laughs> Team Brass determined Lee Sale's success for the game, quote, could have not happened without a White Sox employee providing inside assistance to Lee. And the affidavit said, Jim, what a scandal on the White Sox hands. They have an inside job going on within their organization selling comp tickets on StubHub. Well, you know, they didn't make the postseason, so I think, you know, in the 100th, <laughs> the centennial of the Black Sox scandal, this is probably as close to fraud <laughs> as they could get. You know what? After reading the uh, the report, I think instead of reporting Bruce Lee to the FBI, Brooks Boyer should just hire him to head up the online ticket sales team because this guy is getting results selling 35,000 tickets during the 2016 to 2018 seasons yeah. during the rebuild. Yeah, I'm surprised, you know, when they when you mentioned the numbers and, and, you know, reading the numbers and just trying to contextualize it year over year, uh, I'm surprised it wasn't caught sooner <laughs> or that that wouldn't that wouldn't stand out sooner just because there haven't been a whole lot of hot tickets for the White Sox in the last, uh, you know, maybe 2016, there was enough excitement to hide it by, but by 2017 with the rebuild and, and uh, just the, you know, I guess lack of trying and, 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 you know, I guess dip in season ticket sales and everything like that. Uh, that would be pretty noticeable, I would think. I mean, this guy sold 11,000 tickets for a 100-loss team. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, the fact that it's an inside job, because according to the affidavit, the only way that Lee could get these tickets is to walk up to the box office and someone is handing him comp tickets, which are generally reserved for, I guess, friends and family uh, other employees of the White Sox or sponsors of the Chicago White Sox get comp tickets along with their corporate sponsorships of the team. So Lee gets these comp tickets and then he goes and takes the barcodes and puts them on StubHub. And I'm sure a lot of you listening to this probably bought tickets from Bruce Lee. Tickets that fell off a truck. <laughs> so we'll see on what happens with this, but I just I don't know. I got a kick out of this story. Maybe it should be made into a, a TV episode or something or a short film because I just find it. I just find it funny that someone has made close to a million dollars selling comp White Sox tickets on StubHub when the team sucked. Yeah, at least somebody is doing. I guess I, I kind of admire it just because somebody was able to do well right i mean i've seen i've seen our you know when it comes to traffic and everything like that and 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 uh just the you know i, I guess our listenership has grown but yeah i just imagine what it would be i'm watching like say uh you know aaron gleeman's podcast twins podcast talking about his uh year over year success with uh the twins uh winning 100 games and, and making the postseason everybody gets exciting you just see how those numbers shoot up uh, you know, our numbers have been growing and, 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 uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I don't take that for granted just because when you look at attendance and you look at ratings, uh, those have been, you know, plummeted and have, have really, uh, climbed slowly and have, have a hard time getting traction. But when it comes to that kind of success, you kind of got to tip your hat and say, uh, you know, even if it is a crime and you, know, you should get punished. It's also like, uh, I would expect the judge to at least maybe compliment him at the sentencing. <laughs> Just say, hey, nice job. You know, you're not, you know, there's no leniency, but still uh, pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good luck, Bruce Lee. Uh, we'll see what happens uh, with this case. Uh, if he does end up having to go to jail selling comp White Sox tickets, but 
At the same time, congratulations on making so much money <laughs> off the Chicago White Sox. At least someone was making money selling White Sox tickets during the rebuild. Jim and I will take a quick break, but coming up next to the Sox Machine podcast, we review the 2019 Chicago White Sox coaching staff and the front office efforts. Do you ever feel like ticketing websites make getting to the event difficult on purpose? It's as if they're so big they can get away with not caring about the customer experience. So what if their site's annoying or they don't have the events that you want? The real question is, how easy could it be if those ticketing sites actually cared? Well, with millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way in buying tickets. You can search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd. They built the fastest way to find tickets so you can stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. And I use SeatGeek all of the time, especially buying tickets to White Sox games this past season. Also, I know the Chicago Bears aren't playing well, but if you still want to catch a game this season, I'm sure you can find some great deals on SeatGeek. The Chicago Bulls and Blackhawks, their regular seasons are underway. You can find great deals right now for those games on SeatGeek.com or you want to catch a concert or maybe a Broadway show during the offseason. You can find all those types of tickets as well on SeatGeek.com. And some of the big benefits on why I use SeatGeek, they pull together millions of tickets from all over the web. They rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10, and SeatGeek displays them on an interactive seat map, and they break down the details. The green dots mean good deals. The red dots, those tickets are overpriced, and every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets with confidence. And the best part is that SeatGeek will give you $10 off on your first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is just use our promo code. Download the SeatGeek app today and use promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. The Chicago White Sox were a 10-game win improvement from the 2018 season as the 2019 squad finished third place in the American League Central. That was the best divisional finish for the White Sox since the 2012 season. We have graded the players in the past three episodes. Now it's time to judge on how the White Sox coaching staff and the White Sox front office did during the 2019 season as we also prepare for the upcoming offseason. So, Jim, let's start with the coaching staff. Again, I'll be sharing the results from the Sox Machine 2019 season review survey in which we had over 569 responses. And the first question is about the skipper, Rick Renteria. What grade did you give Rick Renteria for managing the White Sox in 2019? I gave him a C. A C. Now, we 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 gave him a B. At the halfway mark this year. So what what happened from having him be a B halfway through the season to a C at the end of the year? Well, I think, you know, some of the tendencies that he had uh, did not go away when it came to bunting and small ball and lineups and at-bats and just, you know, confusing decisions there that just kind of piled up. There's also, you know, with all the pitching emergencies and, and, and things that happened, really didn't go to the opener at all. I think that's a big disappointment this year. Um, yeah, it's just uh, you know, when you have a year where you're not contending and uh, you, you have all these pitching emergencies and, and you know, you're throwing Dylan Covey and others back out there trying to get innings from anybody, it seems like the perfect situation to experiment and get crazy and 
try new things, and they largely avoided that until the very end of the season, and that didn't quite work, and just seems like a big missed opportunity for this kind of year, because as we've seen with other teams that are good and, uh, you know, that, that have been injured, like the Yankees and the A's and the Rays, you know, when they have, you know, the, these uh, situations pile up later in the year and they can't find internal replacements for a pitcher, they have to improvise and, and get by a series at a time. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tool that they have in their arsenal. I don't think it's their first choice, but it's one they're comfortable in using. And I think in a year like this, I would have liked to see them get comfortable with using the opener and other alternative strategies just to, you know, learn how to survive when these games actually do matter. You make the right points, Jim. And I agree with every point that you gave, but I'm giving Rick Renteria a B minus because this team I thought overachieved their expected win loss record. Their expected win total was 69 wins. They end up finishing 72. I thought with him being more relaxed about the hustling mm-hmm. uh, was a positive sign. And you can start to see that this team, this team does play really hard for him. So there must, he must have a really good relationship with the players in the clubhouse next season though i'm with you i will be looking at the end game decision making the bunting how he's handling the pitching because i'm expecting this team to make the transition from rebuilder to contender but a lot of the things that renteria said uh really struck a chord with me towards the end of the season that he's really sick of the losing and now is the time to start winning So I agree with him on that. I think he's got the right mentality where the ball club is currently as far as trying to make this transition. We'll see on where he lacks as a manager, which you pointed those out, uh, how much that impacts both positively or negatively for the White Sox in 2020. Yeah, I think I should mention or I should reinforce what you said about the effort level. When you have a manager who's overseeing rebuild, usually at this point in the rebuild, this is where the first manager gets fired. Um, just because there's been a lot of losing, the guy runs out of messages, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the benching sometimes, you know, just, uh, trying to, you know, flogging and and an underqualified roster too hard, uh, stops getting results, people tune them out and so forth. And there's really been no evidence of that. And I think that speaks to Renteria's people skills and, and, uh, you know, his ability to relate to players and not, not like a pushover, but just, he's, uh, um, I, I think he's being more responsible about his punishments this year and, and letting players please themselves more. So there's that. And, and that shouldn't be taken for granted. And so maybe I would say C plus just because that is pretty impressive uh, that a manager you know, with uh, given the intentionally limited rosters that he's gotten for, for years now uh, is just, uh, you know, still hasn't tuned them out and you haven't heard anything about a, uh, you know, clubhouse fracturing or guys, um, you know, either falling out of favor or you know, being doghoused or anything like that. It's been a pretty, pretty tight ship. I think all things considered, um, you know, whether I think, uh, you know, some of the developmental issues, uh, Todd Stever, you know, I guess we'll get to Todd Steverson, but just, you know, some changes being made, um, you know, perhaps if there are some positive developments when it comes to player development, then maybe uh, that'll boost his grade even more. Maybe we're right now he's being kind of held back because of things that are out of his control in terms of talent. Yeah. Andy Green got fired. By the San Diego Padres. Yeah. Uh, during their rebuild, trying to make that transition because they just thought that the messaging wasn't getting to the players. And he was not able to recover, or the team wasn't able to recover when they lost Fernando Tatis Jr. 
for the rest of the season. And they have moved on and they've hired a new manager. So it's to back up your point that this is typically the time that you bring in a new manager uh, to try to help you make this transition for rebuild or contender. The White Sox front office has decided to stick with Rick Retoria. And I know for some of you listening, you disagree with that choice because there are some very good managers like Joe Girardi that were available, uh, but he is now going to be managing in Philadelphia while Joe Madden also moves to the Chicago Cubs and he's going to be managing Mike Trout in Los Angeles for the Angels. So with Rick Renteria coming back in 2020, so is Don Cooper, the pitching coach for the Chicago White Sox. What grade would you give Don Cooper for his 2019 season, Jim? Feels like a D. Wow, I am more positive than you so far. I gave Don Cooper a C, and I should back up. Our listeners, 50% of our listeners gave Rick Renteria a C. 52% of our listeners gave Don Cooper also a C, and I'm giving Coop a C because the pitching results ended up being close to league average. But why are you giving Coop a D, Jim? Oh, just when it comes to the overall shape of the rotation and bullpen just there wasn't really any progress i mean lucas giolito was a great story how much you can attribute to cooper yeah i'm not really going to get into that when it comes to you know giolito did it on his own because i think when it comes to you know don cooper i think letting a pitcher figure out something on his own is um you know partially to his credit at least you know not having the ego to you know i guess completely steer away a pitcher goes about his business but you know giolito was kind of the lone rotation success story Lopez took a step back Nova really um you know wasn't tradable wasn't flippable gave some innings but really you know wasn't improvement say over James Shields you know year over year and then you know the other two spots were kind of a mess Dylan Cease uh you know he had some early issues and and big innings and such so they're you know kind of where they were last year and having one great pitcher or at least one you know great story um I would say Giolito's better than Lopez last year but right now that you're trying to find Support around him is a little bit tough. Um, you know, Carlos Rodon getting hurt doesn't help, but, uh, it, you know, that's that was kind of a known. When it comes to the bullpen, kind of the same thing. Lacking strikeouts, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, lacking, I guess, uh, you know, reliable high leverage guys. Evan Marshall is a nice story. Um, and Aaron Bummer was great, but Aaron Bummer kind of replaced Jace Fry, who took a big step back. So when it comes to, I guess, building a staff, I'm not really sensing... I would say it's C in terms of results, but D feels like just in terms of progress. I didn't detect a whole lot of year-over-year progress, and I think when there is progress next year, it'll come in steps like Cease uh, developing and uh, Kopech coming back and maybe a free agent signing or two. But when it comes to, I guess, the actual in-season progress this year, uh, there wasn't a lot year-over-year. Yeah, Coop needs to figure out Ronaldo Lopez and Dylan Cease. And at some point next year, Michael Kopech. Those three, he really needs to get those three on track or this transition from rebuilder to contender uh, is not going to be smooth because the way that Rick Hahn constructed this team as far as rebuild was to be reliant on starting pitching with Gilito, Lopez, Cease, and Kopech and other starting pitchers that are hurt or maybe have been phased out because of due to poor performance. But yeah, Coop really needs to figure out how to get Lopez, Cease, and Kopech on track and to be quality starters. So this team, so it's a it's a much easier transition for this ball club, and you can start really believing the White Sox could be a mid '80s win team next year. So hopefully, he still has some magic and uh, his coaching ability to help out the team in 2020. 
Now that's the pitching side. Let's go over to the hitting side. We know that the White Sox are going to have a new hitting coach. But before he officially leaves, uh, well, he already officially left, but uh, I guess let's judge Todd Steverson for his 2019 season with the White Sox, Jim, his last season. What grade would you give Todd Steverson on the hitting side? Well, I think in this case, I don't know what to think of hitting coaches. I think I've been quite clear in, uh, I guess, attributing grades to, or, or performance to hitting coaches. I would say for the offense, I would say maybe D plus C minus in that range. Yeah, I gave him a D. Yeah, it's just like the success stories were vital. Like Yohan Makata's season, really important that he got that done. And the success that he had from both sides of the plate uh, surpassed my expectations. Tim Anderson winning the batting title. Where did that come from? Eloy Jimenez figuring it out. Like, there, you know, there are enough. The key guys, I guess, uh, really stood out. You know, Brayu too, leading the league in RBIs. James McCann having a decent season. Like, all of them, like, those are cool. Um, but you know, just the the way they went about it uh, with, you know, kind of sacrificing walks, striking out a lot, and then just the failures elsewhere on the roster really showed that um, it's really tough to win that way and have a successful offense that way. So I guess like the, the, there were individual success stories that are important, but uh, you know, I think the White Sox are trying to figure out now how to build an offense. Cause when you watch the world series, it's one thing, you know, you notice with the Astros and the Yankees and, and the Nats is that like the quality of their bats is just outstanding. And you really don't see a lot of the White Sox, like, you know, uh, falling behind Oh two, going three to two, following pitches off uh, just the, the eye and the contact and just the combination of uh, discipline and uh, plate coverage is just uh, something White Sox have sometimes plate coverage, but the discipline is always lacking. And I think that's really what they're trying to figure out. Yeah. I mean, go back to game four before Alex Bregman hit his backbreaking grand slam. The Astros walked four times in that inning and they were even taking their walks after Bregman hit the grand slam They're They are not a very free swinging team, but when they do make contact, it's very impactful, and I know that a lot of that has to do with the talent that's on the roster for the Houston Astros, but they have a mentality. They, they have a team approach on, on hitting that each batter carries with them to the plate, uh, whereas the White Sox, as you mentioned, Jim, yeah, they hit, but they didn't walk, so they made things really tough on themselves, and they didn't hit a lot of home runs. They were one of the six teams that didn't hit 200 home runs this season, despite playing home games at guaranteed rate field and despite the bouncy ball. That's why Todd Steverson no longer has a job with the White Sox and the White Sox front office has moved on. So speaking about the White Sox front office, time to grade Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn. What grade would you give the White Sox front office for the 2019 season? Feels like an F to me. Yeah, I gave him an F as well. Because when I thought about it, what did they do during the season other than trade Nate Jones to Texas yeah. and give away $1 million in international spending money so they could save on the buyout for Nate Jones? Yeah, not promote Luis Robert or Nick Madrigal. Right. Which I would consider a point again. Like, not improving the team one way or another. And, yeah, just when you look at... Year over year, just the success stories that broke out, like Giolito and, and Moncada and Anderson, like they were there last year. The guys they added, uh, Alex Colome, good season, but uh, you know his, his arbitration number is pretty big. Omar Narvaez, Omar Narvaez had a nice season with uh, you know the Mariners, so that trade really. And and when you look at Narvaez's season, it's kind of like uh, he's kind of like the best case Zach Collins right now. So, 
it's that's a little bit of a, a a wash when it comes to a trade. James McCann was good, but Kelvin Herrera was bad. Like and, and John Jay didn't do add anything, and uh, Yonder Alonso didn't add anything, and just the uh, talent that they passed up, like Lance Lynn's and so forth, uh, guys who helped for a not huge sum. Uh, yeah, they just didn't really add. They didn't, they didn't add wins. They didn't try to really. No, after Manny Machado signed with the Padres, the White Sox front office was pretty much. Their season was over. I mean, they did bring in Irving Santana uh, to help with the back end of the rotation. I'm laughing because some of us want to forget that Irving Santana was on the 2019 Chicago White Sox. But you'll have to remember that, I'm sure, on a future sporical quiz on Saturday mornings on SoxMachine.com. But after that, I mean, the reason I'm giving him laugh is because they really didn't do anything. Yeah. What grade do you give someone that doesn't do anything? Well, that in the year on the farm, too. Um, was disappointing. Yeah, I don't know how much I want to give credit to Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams on that. I mean, I know they're they're in charge, right? Yeah. You know, Chris Getz is under the under their corporate umbrella, and he reports to them. And yeah, a lot of it was injuries, but you know, the Birmingham outfielders really struggled this year. They didn't take a step forward that we were hoping that they could. Uh, and you know, they're in a tight spot as they don't have a lot of trade assets, but. Just for the 2019 season, yeah, for me, it's an F because they didn't do anything. And Jim gives them an F. But now the good news for front office personnel is that their season begins next week when free agency opens. Now, I'm sure it'll be a slow ride as usual. I'm sure there'll be some talks and some trade ideas that will be born during the GM meetings because everybody's in the same room again. But I did ask in the surveys, Jim, some confidence polls, trying to gauge where our listeners and readers are when it comes to their confidence in Rick Renteria's ability, Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams' abilities, and Jerry Reinsdorf as an owner on helping this team be a winning ball club in 2020. So the first confidence meter is about Rick Renteria. And the question was, how confident are you in Rick Renteria's ability to manage the White Sox to a winning record in 2020? Just a winning record, at least 82 wins. And on a scale of one, which is not confident, to five, very confident, it's almost like a perfect bell curve. The most popular answer, 39.2%, were a three out of five. Then if you move to the front office, how confident are you in the White Sox front office ability to create a winning roster in 2020? The curve shifts far to the left. The most popular answer was two out of five, 36.7% with the second most popular answer being one out of five. And the final confidence question I asked was, how confident are you in Jerry Reinsdorf approving an increase in team payroll of more than $100 million in 2020? And by far the most popular answer was one out of five. What that tells me for those who took the survey, Jim, is that fans are still uncertain about Rick Renteria if he's the guy. But they're not very confident in Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams converting on targets this offseason. And they're even more not confident in Jerry Reinsdorf 
approving the type of payroll that it would take for Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn to make this transition from rebuilder to a contender in 2020. So when you hear those results, what goes through your mind as far as where White Sox fans thoughts are about this franchise heading to the off season? Well, the hundred million, that seems like an over, like that seems like an overreaction. Uh, you're giving them a one out of five for a hundred million. When I was trying to set the, uh, the payroll cap for, which is a soft cap for the off-season plan project. I was rolling around numbers in my head, and you know, it seemed like you know, based on White Sox payroll history and how much uh, you know certain contracts might cost to improve certain roster spots, I settled on 120 million, thinking that was like within the range of the White Sox when they're trying, and maybe they've saved some money in previous seasons so they can add more to a push this year, and maybe they expect more when it comes to ticket sales and excitement, and and maybe. Uh, cable money uh, from having all their games at NBC Sports Chicago. But, you know, you didn't really have the, um, you know, the history, the precedent of the White Sox blowing past that number. So I thought 120 was fair. So, um, and, and some people said that was too low or uh, that, uh, you know, that, that number is ridiculous. And, and, you know, I guess they didn't accuse me of cutting Reinsdorf for break, but saying like, you know, expectations for spending should be higher, which I agree. I was just trying to set like a realistic number, but 120 seems, uh, I guess, on the higher end to me, but I would say 110 seems eminently reasonable. So I would say, like, blowing past 100 million, I would probably give that four out of five. What happens, though, if it doesn't occur? And the fans that are one out of five, that their fears become true? Uh, that would be pretty damning, I think. Just when it comes to uh, the White Sox saying the money will be spent because they will not have spent the money. Yeah, I mean, this is the worst fear. Right. This is the fear that nobody wants to really talk yeah. about. I don't want to think about it. I want to think that the White Sox are going to have a payroll that lands, as you mentioned, between 110 to 120 million. Is that where it needs to be for a league average payroll? No, league average is going to be closer to like 140 million dollars and the White Sox are still going to spend money uh, or their payroll in total is still going to be hovering around the other small market teams like the Milwaukee Brewers and the Cleveland Indians, the Detroit Tigers, uh, despite them being the third largest market in the country. But yeah, if it doesn't, if they don't spend this offseason, which I think they will, I think they will, yeah. but if they don't and I'm wrong, oh man. They better hope that Bruce Lee gets some more cop tickets to sell. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I, I think with the spending and, and, you know, if I'm interpreting past White Sox history correctly and, and, and trying to project from that, I would guess that they end up around, you know, 110, 120, and you could argue that they go higher, but I think they want to, you know, and flexibility being such the buzzword around baseball, the way they would explain it is that they don't want to spend all their, uh, resources available you know quote-unquote available resources when it comes to this year because there's still a lot of unknowns on the farm system you know when it comes to the amount of injuries recent draft picks like you know Andrew Vaughn what he's going to look like in his first full pro season whether any of the Birmingham outfielders bounce back whether like the injury guys like uh you know Kopech and Carlos Redon and, and Dane Dunning and uh, Jimmy Lambert you know whether they represent like a massive increase in pitching depth just by being available or whether they don't bounce back all the way and the White Sox have to add elsewhere, whether they're trade baits, you know, if we're adding, you know, like in the mid middle of the season, I think, uh, 
you know, those are the, I, I think maybe those are the questions that they're going to want to have answered before they go, you know, all in and go towards maybe 140 million, which I think uh, might be the first peak, you know, I guess pre postseason peak. I think if they make the playoffs and, and really show that they have staying power in the AL Central, you could see that, you know, they, it should go past 150 million. But when it comes to the whole uh, building up, trying to push towards the first postseason appearance, I think 140 would probably be the more realistic number. We'll see if they get there. First, let them be active enough and make some key signings and trade acquisitions to get over $100 million and see if they do land between 110 and $120 million. Because I do think you the White Sox will be able to bring in some players this offseason uh, that would really give them a boost for next season with the amount of money and leeway that Rick Hahn can spend uh, after the arbitration number settled in and whatever number he settles in with Jose Abreu. Uh, Rick Hahn could have 60 to $70 million, Jim, to spend this offseason to even get to $110, $120 million. So hopefully the White Sox are very busy But this is the end of our 2019 season review, which means most of the conversations we will be having on Sox Machine is looking ahead to the 2020 season. And no better way to do that than the offseason plan project, in which so many of you have participated in on spending Jerry Reinsdorf's money, 60 to $70 million in new acquisitions, either through free agency or through trades. So coming up after the break, I'm joined by a few of you who have filled out plans to share their unique trade ideas and free agent targets next on the Sox Machine Podcast. Spring is calling and Target's ready with deals for your outdoor space. Grab miracle Grow Potting Mix on sale at two for $8. Plus get 20% off planters and more. Find spring's best outdoor buys at Target where low prices and great deals make it easy to save. Restrictions apply. This past week on SoxMachine.com has been a fun one as the 2019 and 2020 off-season plan project has kicked off. We have close to 100 entries from people acting as the White Sox general manager, and there have been some great ideas on players to target and trades to make. Let's chat with some of those folks who completed an off-season plan project on SoxMachine.com and discuss their unique ideas. The first idea comes from Soxider, who joins us now on the Sox Machine podcast. And Soxider, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Good to be here, Josh. I like your free agent targets. You have the White Sox signing Madison Bumgarner to a five-year, $100 million deal, and Jason Castro to platoon with James McCann at catcher. But the idea that really stuck out to me that was truly unique and I haven't seen anywhere else is the White Sox trading for Matt Carpenter of the St. Louis Cardinals. What was your thought process in making that decision? So I saw the rumor about Marcelo Zuna getting seven years, $160 million, and him being linked to the White Sox. And that kind of scared me off a little bit. For for one, I just don't see them you know, committing that kind of money to a guy like him. And I want J.D. Martinez as much as the next guy. But thinking about Marcelo Zuna, it's like, well, there's another Cardinal that I've read rumors that they're trying to get rid of. And it's a guy who was an MVP candidate in 2018, and he had a, you know, a really down year. So I see the option of you know, the Cardinals eating some of that money for Matt Carpenter and bringing him over to the south side. 
what benefits do you think the White Sox would get in acquiring someone like Matt Carpenter? So they want to get on base more and they want to hit for more power and specifically from the left side. He checks both those boxes. He had a terrible year last year, you know, worst of his career. And he still would have been first on the White Sox in walks and third in on-base percentage. I mean, it's a low <laughs> bar, but he would have, he's going to provide a, a lot of help on those ends for, for the White Sox. And if you believe in dead cat bounces, uh, as Soxider pointed out, Carpenter hit 226 with a 334 on-base percentage and slugged 392. But in 2018, Carpenter did hit 257 with a 374 on-base percentage and slugged 523 with 36 home runs. So again, if you do believe in dead cat bounces with veterans and a Matt Carpenter hits closer to 2018 version than 2019 version, that would be a really good addition, Sox Sider, to the White Sox lineup, a lineup that is starving for left-handed hitting. Mm-hmm. If the White Sox were to make this trade, where would you play Matt Carpenter in 2020? I would start him at second base until they call McMadrigal up. He's got experience there. He's not the best second baseman by any means. Um, but he, he can hold his own there, especially, you know, for a month until, until Madrigal comes up and then I'd slot him over to DH. And then, you know, if, if, and when Moncada gets banged up again, he can go over to third, he can play first. I think he just provides a lot of depth for the White Sox all throughout the infield. Those are really good points. So again, I, Madison Bumgarner would be a great addition. Jason Castro, we've been talking about him for the, I don't know how many years on this show, mm-hmm. joining the White Sox to help out a catcher, but the White Sox going after Matt Carpenter. I like that idea. And Soxider, thank you so much for coming on the show to share your Matt Carpenter trade. No problem. Thanks for having me, Josh. Sticking with making moves with the St. Louis Cardinals for a moment, joining us is Anthony Ruskin, who works for Baseball Prospectus. And Anthony, in his offseason plan, is also making a trade with the St. Louis Cardinals. And Anthony, thank you so much for joining the Sox Machine podcast. Not a problem. Happy to be here. All right, so I got a lot of flack for non-tendering Carlos Rodon in my plan. But in your plan, you are deciding to trade Carlos Rodon to St. Louis for Jose Martinez. So what is your breakdown for this hypothetical trade? Yeah, so I mean, uh, first off, um, I wouldn't really be satisfied going into the season having Rodon on the roster. So my decisions were effectively trade him or non-tender him. and I felt that non-tendering him might have been a little bit of a waste of value. Um, like you could find a suitor somewhere and you could find a decent, you know, piece either for the future or for now. I was looking more towards, you know, competing next year. So I went ahead and, and uh, traded Rodon to the Cardinals for Jose Martinez. The thinking behind that was, uh, A, from the Cardinals end, it, it's the type of guy that they tend to go after um, in terms of offside plays. Uh, he'd probably fit within their bullpen, maybe, maybe be a little bit of a swing man, but I would think more that like he would just shift to the bullpen in their organization. Um, and hopefully at least on their end, help them compete for, uh, another NL central title at the end of the year. And my thinking with the Sox is, you know, he'll maybe make 10 appearances at the end of the year. And then he's a free agent after next year. So I don't really see a lot of value for him with the Sox, but Jose Martinez provides, some really, really, really high quality uh, hitting from the right hand side of the plate. And uh, in my plan, I went out and got, you know, two two left-handed power pads and Peterson and Schwarber that could at times use, you know, a, a platoon partner. So you platoon either one of them with Martinez uh, against the lefty starter. 
and that gives you a lot of balance in your lineup um, and allows you to deploy them in more effective situations and kind of get more use out of their strengths rather than their weaknesses. Um, and, you know, I, I felt strongly about picking up more left-handed power, but I, I just didn't really want to leave it to, you know, Forber and Peterson to play the 162 games. I want to have, you know, the ability to essentially cycle them in and out, keep them fresh and have them facing uh, right-handed pitching as much as possible. Those are all great points that you made, Anthony. And Martinez for the Cardinals last year hit 269 with a 340 on base percentage and slugged 410 in 128 games. So in your plan, is Martinez the primary DH in your vision of the 2020 White Sox if you do acquire if they do acquire players like Kyle Schwarber and Jock Peterson? Um, I think there would be a little bit of a rotation of I think Peterson would mostly play in right field even against left-handed pitching. Um, but I think primarily what it would be is Schwarber and Eloy switching between left field and DH. And then against uh, left-handed pitching, you'd see Martinez in there more frequently as a DH. Um, I want Eloy on the field as much as possible. So there'd be a lot less of, you know, a, a Schwarber, Peterson, Martinez lineup, but um, that's certainly possible as well, especially if Eloy gets hurt. You know, it's nice to have a good quality bat off the bench. The other move you suggested and I'm jealous of because I think it's a great idea, and I wish I thought of that and included in my offseason plan, and that's the White Sox signing Drew Pomerantz. What do you think the benefits would be for the White Sox if they did sign a pitcher like Pomerantz? Well, I think first off, when the Pomerantz trade happened um, to the Brewers earlier this season, or earlier in the season uh, at the trade deadline, um, Pomerantz had like 10 innings out of the pen or something like that. Um, and, and people were surprised. I, th- I think they got like Dubon for him or something like that. And people were surprised with the return that the Giants got for Pomerantz. And I think it was indicative of a change that at the very least the Brewers saw, but it was a co- apparently a competitive trade market for him. So I think it's a, I think it's a uh, sign of things that teams can see with the data available to them and they could see changes that look effective and, and stuff like that. So so I thought that was an interesting point at the trade deadline, and then we saw him down the stretch for the Brewers if he lights out out of the pen. And it's something that I think is indicative of, A, an industry-wide, or at least, you know, part of the industry-wide um, view of Pomeranz as, as a potential top-end pen arm, and B, uh, a view of, I guess, uh, certainty with the data available behind Pomeranz, or I wouldn't say certainty, I guess. People are buying, essentially what I'm trying to say is, People are buying Pomeranz as a more top-end relief arm. Um, and I like to essentially – I see that as a point of like – like a point where I would like to see the Sox take a little bit of a gamble and, and go in mm. on a guy that maybe doesn't have the longest track record as a you know top-end, you know, back-end of the bullpen relief arm um, and get a little bit of value out of what might be a lesser contract for Pomeranz. But, you, you know, you may be paying out of – uh, paying top end dollar for a Wolf Smith. So yeah, I like Pomeranz a lot as a relief option, and I think he's filling fantastically ahead of Aaron Bonner in the bullpen. And I think that they could get him for relatively cheap, you know, maybe under ten million dollars a year. I think I had him at like eight per year for two years. I think it'd be really interesting. I think it'd help uh, close out that bullpen, mm-hmm. provide a great relief arm at the back end, which they do need, especially in my plan where we sent off. Column A and uh, Evan Marshall, but 
yeah, I, I think he'd be a great addition. I think he could be had for relatively cheaply while also providing a lot of quality. Yeah, pitching out of the Brewers' bullpen, as you mentioned, Pomerantz was lights out in 26 and a third innings. Pomerantz had a 2.39 ERA, striking out 45 batters in 26 innings to just eight walks. He was very effective, and I agree with you, Anthony. If you pair Pomerantz and Aaron Bummer together in that White Sox bullpen, that's two very, very good lefties for the White Sox in 2020 coming out of the bullpen. And, Anthony, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to discuss as far as your offseason plan, and thank you so much for joining the Sox Machine Podcast. Not a problem. I'd love to come back on soon. (laughs) Now, there were a lot of trades for the White Sox to acquire an outfielder throughout the Sox Machine offseason plan projects. In my plan, I have the White Sox acquiring Starling Marte from the Pittsburgh Pirates, and in many, many plans, there are trades for the White Sox to acquire Jock Peterson of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Well, one plan from Teflon Don Cooper had another target in mind with the Dodgers, and that's Alex Verdugo. And Teflon Don Cooper, why are you targeting Alex Verdugo for the White Sox? Well, he would immediately be the best defensive outfielder we would put out there uh, along with Robert and uh, Eloy and he can play all the outfield positions and he comes with the added bonus of being able to handle himself in the batter's box. Yeah, that is very true in 106 games with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Verdugo was a 3.1 war player according to baseballreference.com hitting 294 with a 342 on base percentage. And he slugged 475. Would he be your right fielder for 2020, or how would you shuffle the White Sox outfield? Well, assuming uh, Robert will be up soon to play center field, and that he can play center field in the majors, yeah, I would put Verdugo in right. Uh, I think his best feature is actually his arm, so he would play really well in right field. Now. That would be one of your big moves, but in your plan, you said that your top priority for the White Sox is for them signing catcher Yasmani Grandel, so continuing on the Los Angeles Dodgers connection here. Why would Grandel be your top priority for the White Sox this offseason? Well, I'm a little skittish on McCann, uh, just going by his history, uh, not including his first half this year. I think his second half showed what he really is. Uh, I think he'd be a fine backup catcher for us, maybe to be Giolito's personal catcher. Um, But that would be nice to have a bat like Grandall. And he's also a very good defensive catcher. Uh, And have Grandall, switch hitter. Um, I'm not exactly sure if he's best from the left or right side. But it would be nice to have him slot him in there in the middle of the lineup somewhere. You also had the White Sox sighting starting pitcher Zach Wheeler. So imagine an offseason where Teflon Don Cooper is the White Sox GM. And they got Wheeler, Grundell, and Verdugo. I'll tell you what. I would sign up for that in a heartbeat. A great plan, Teflon Don Cooper. And thank you so much for joining the Sox Machine podcast to share your ideas. Thank you, Josh. Pleasure being here. Now, the next plan comes from Uncle Jano, whose big splash is signing Anthony Rendon to a six-year, $200 million deal, which I like that because it's very realistic as it would beat Nolan Arenado's annual average value of his deal, which Rendon would get paid $33.3 million, while Arenado would be getting $32.5 million. 
But the signing that caught my eye from Uncle Jano's offseason plan was the White Sox signing Dallas Keuchel to help out with the starting rotation. And joining us now to explain the thought process is Uncle Jano. And Uncle Jano, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Josh. So why Dallas Keuchel out of all the starting pitching options that are available this offseason? Well, first and foremost, I think we've got a lot of young right-handed pitchers. Um, so I wanted to get a little bit of balance in there uh, looking for a lefty. Um, of the options that were out there, Madison Bumgarner is another popular option. Uh, I don't think he wants to leave the West Coast. Uh, he's got a lot of upside, but him being younger, I think he's going to be looking for a lot more money as well. Um, so with me, I wanted to go Rendon with a big splash. Uh, I thought Keiko would be a good veteran uh, to come in. He's a former Cy Young winner. He's been a world champion. Um, he could come in here and mentor the young guys, teach them how to do it. And he proved last year with Atlanta that he can still be effective. Uh, through about 120 innings, I believe, after uh, finally settling with a contract, had an ERA under four. Um, doesn't throw real fast, but he's more uh, gutsy uh, with being able to get guys out. Uh, reminds me a lot of Jose Quintana. Now, on the last week's Sox Machine podcast, during the Patreon PO Sox segment, I was asked about comparing Madison Bumgarner and Dallas Keuchel, and who would be a better fit for the White Sox. I went with Keuchel because Bumgarner's fly ball rate scares me, especially pitching at guaranteed rate field. If money wasn't an issue and Bumgarner did not want to stay on the West Coast, Uncle Jano, comparing those two, who do you think would be a better fit for the White Sox, Bumgarner or Keuchel? Personally, I still like Keiko, but I will say with the overwhelming caveat, if we can skip the regular season and go right to the postseason, overwhelmingly mad bum at that point. Uh, arguably, if not uh, without argument, the greatest postseason pitcher of all time. Now, back to your Anthony Rendon signing again. I thought it was very realistic as far as what you would offer, but what would this signing mean for Yohan Mikata? Would you move Mikata back to second and why? Uh, I would. I think a lot has been made that he was effective this year because of his move to third base. I think it was more just his maturation, uh, getting familiar with major league pitching. I don't think his offense would take a hit at all with moving him back to second. Um, and with Rendon sliding into third, he's just as good, if not better, of a glove. Um, I think offensively and defensively, that gives us the best infield in major league baseball. Um, Rendon, I think, is flexible enough, too. He could slide over to first to give Abreu a couple of days off, again, assuming the Sox are going to bring Abreu back. Um, and Moncada could then play third base on the days that Rendon is either off or playing first. So it's just a lot of versatility. Yeah, your offseason plan was a very busy one. On top of signing Anthony Rendon and Dallas Keuchel, you also have the White Sox signing Yasmani Grandel. Uh, so if, they, if this offseason were to come to fruition, Anthony Rendon, Yasmani Grandel, and Dallas Keuchel, uh, I don't know what how White Sox fans would react to that, Uncle Jano. Probably <laughs> massive Back heart attacks across the city. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> massive heart attacks and then uh, unrealistic expectations for the 2020 season. But hey, that would be a lot more fun than what we have been through the last few off seasons as White Sox fans. But great plan, and thank you so much for joining the show to share your ideas. No uh, pleasure, Josh. Thanks a lot. And the final deal is one that I think is most likely to happen this upcoming free agency, a little bit of a teaser to a future column where Patrick Nolan, P. Knowles, and I make our free agent predictions like we did last year. And that's the White Sox signing outfielder Nicholas Castellanos, which Matt Berklin had that idea in his plan. And he joins us now on the Sox Machine podcast 
And Matt, why do you think the White Sox will be signing Nick Castellanos? Or I guess a better way to put it is why would you want the White Sox to sign Nick Castellanos? Well, I feel that we're going to sign Castellanos just because I feel that more of the money is going to be spent on pitching and maybe going after a couple other players because I think Marcelo Zuna may be a little too much for us. And I feel Puig is going to go somewhere else. So then that kind of leaves Castellanos versus just going for some guy that's just slightly better than a quadruple-A player. Now, what benefits do you think Castellanos would bring to the White Sox if that signing came to be? Now, I do think he would be a pretty a pretty good quality pickup if you get him for the right price. Um, the benefit is, is he can play right and left. So, for example, if Eloy goes down, he can also play left. But with him in right, I can see him also do, doing very well hitting at the G rate. Because the one argument I heard about him not being a good signing is because that if you took his home run chart from Wrigley and superimposed it on a Comerica Park, that most of the home runs would fall five foot short. But if you superimpose that same spray chart on guaranteed rate field, you even get more home runs. So I think his power numbers are going to be a lot higher at playing for the White Sox at home. Yeah, and hopefully... You know, his splits at Guaranteed Rate Field improve. One, that was one of the things that jumped out because you look at his splits, he just owns the White Sox, right? So the, the White Sox are very familiar on how good of a hitter Cassianos could be. But at Guaranteed Rate Field in 47 games, he's hit just 235 with a 278 on base percentage and slug 383. So he struggled against White Sox pitching at Guaranteed Rate Field, but if he plays most of his home games there, beat a smaller ballpark, very similar to Wrigley Field. I agree with you that offensively Castellanos would be a good pickup for the White Sox. And the other signing that I also think from your plan could be a real possibility, and I would love to see on how White Sox fans would react, is the White Sox signing starting pitcher Felix Hernandez to help in one of the spots in the rotation. What's the thought process here, Matt, signing Keen Felix? Um, just I think he's going to be – we're going to – Go after a top-tier pitcher. Uh, so I actually had Wheeler in my plan. So then you're not going to have as much money to spend on another pitcher so you won't be able to get one of these guys like Boris is representing. So I think Felix Hernandez, you could pay him, you know, mil extra than probably the next guy, and I think he'll stick with it and he'll, he'll like the environment here. And I feel the White Sox have had their eyes on King Felix for a while now kind of been licking their lips hoping that he would you know once his contract would free up they could get him and Coop could quote-unquote fix him <laughs> I don't know what there is to fix for King Felix uh these or, days should I, say keep him, should I say keep him running well <laughs> especially with how you know how he's getting up there in years you know a lot of guys are going to start thinking possibly that he may be you know getting ready to fall off but again it's King Felix got a great fastball and his off-speed just has to stay together. Yeah, that changeup is uh, is his bread and butter yeah. these days. So just following in line of James Shields and Ivan Nova and Felix Hernandez, veteran starting pitchers that have to rely on other pitches now because their mid-90s fastball uh, has gone away. Uh, but, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think these are two very logical and – um, probable signings by the White Sox this offseason, getting Nicholas Castellanos and Felix Hernandez. And I really appreciate you taking the time, Matt, for coming on the Sox Machine podcast to share your offseason ideas. No problem. Anytime, Josh.
Big thanks again for everyone that joined the show to share their off-season ideas. And now I'm joined again with Jim Margulis. And Jim, you've seen a lot of the plans on SoxMachine.com. Which of the off-season plan ideas do you like the most? Yeah, I'm about halfway done logging them. I haven't read all the plans yet, uh, but I'm about I'm, I'm more than halfway putting together a spreadsheet of all the, the plans. I think what jumped out to me the most, a couple things jumped out to me in particular. One is... Uh, I'm surprised by how few plans have Mike Moustakis. Right now, I've only seen a couple of them, and I think he's somebody who makes more sense for the White Sox than maybe White Sox fans want to admit. Just a left-handed bat who can play in multiple positions in the infield, whether you want a second-base stopgap before Nick Madrigal or a guy who can play third if Yon Mankata tends to get banged up or you need a DH, I think offers some flexibility that the White Sox could use, so there's that. Um, the other thing that jumped out to me is just how many teams seem like really good trade partners for the White Sox. Like the Mets were a popular one, um, and not just with one guy. Uh, the Mets had Brandon Nimmo, uh, Michael Conforto, as guys who have been, I guess, uh, you know, fallen in favor and out of favor and back in favor and so forth with the Mets front office. And the Mets are in a weird position of trying to push but also save money. So, you know, they could be pressured into some moves. So between Nimmo and Conforto and, and uh, Dom Smith and, uh, you know, you, uh, Noah Syndergaard is a possibility. Uh, you want a Cespedes if uh, you know they, they want to shed some uh, contract, and the White Sox want to absorb some for uh, you know, you know, for help elsewhere. Seems like you know there there are a lot of ways that they could line up. So there's that. Uh, the Pirates make a lot of sense. I know that you mentioned your plan, Starling Marte. He uh, he showed up in a number of other ones. Chris Archer, uh, another one. You know, given the front office uh, overhaul that they're doing, they're replacing their team president. Uh, seem like they're going to go more into rebuilding because of their budget constraints and the way their season fell apart. Uh, they seem like they can line up and be an interesting uh, trade partner, and the White Sox worked with them last year, so maybe there's talks that have already been had um, you know, previously that they can build on, so you know, that's a possibility. Also, the Rockies, uh, John Gray and, and David Dahl, I thought were a couple of interesting uh, choices just because of the Rockies' own front office issues, and they're looking to cut some money and they're looking to improve and, and the White Sox have ways to help them and leave some money. And, and yeah, there, there are ways you can kind of move things around there. Um, and I think, you know, the one one trade that uh, Ken came up with, Ken W.O., he mentioned uh, the Reds uh, and, and Luis Castillo, their, their star starter. Um, that seems premature to me, but I think the Reds could be a fascinating team to watch during the season because if they look like they're out of it mid uh you know, by the All-Star break or, or before then, before the trade deadline, I wonder if they're going to unload in a meaningful way, given that Trevor Bauer is going to be hitting free agency and they have some guys on the older side, if they might unload. And so whether it's, you know, Castillo or Bauer or uh, Suarez or just, you know, a bunch of guys around the diamond, I wonder if uh, they're a team that could be really in position to move guys. And if the White Sox get a little bit of a bounce back from their farm system, uh, you know, maybe... There's a possible trade, you know, a partnership there where you can have uh, maybe one or two guys come back from the Reds to fill out the White Sox roster if they're making a push. Now that's a really interesting point that you made about the Reds, because I don't think they're gonna unload anyone during the off season. But after you mentioned mm -hmm. it, Jim, yeah, they have a poor first half again, like they did this past season. I'm with you. I could see them try to to move some of their I guess more sought after players because they do have some young players are still coming up to the farm system and 
maybe they try to rebuild their core around Nick Senzel. I don't know if Joey Votto with that type of contract on how easy it would be to unload Joey Votto to another team, if another team would be interested in taking him on. But now that you mention it, I'll have to think more about which players from the Cincinnati Reds, again, if they're bad in the first half, that teams could target in July. But yeah, the Rockies deals, uh, I, I find this upcoming offseason fascinating also for Colorado because they just signed Nolan Arenado before the season to that mega contract extension. Yeah, Char- yeah, Charlie Blackman was the other guy I forgot to mention that who was uh, who figured into a couple of trade proposals. Right. And if they were to do that after they signed Nolan Arenado to that huge deal, and I'm sure Arenado thought, okay, you you are committing to me, by you committing to me, you are committed to winning, and then the following season start unloading guys. <laughs> yeah, I think there would be it wouldn't be like a rebuild; it'd be more like reshaping. Sure, maybe taking a step back to try to make another run at it. Sure. Yeah. Well, at least Nolan Arenado is getting his. So yeah. <laughs> don't worry about his, uh, his bottom line. His bottom line is, is doing quite well, but no, I, I really enjoyed a lot of the off season plans. I thought people had some great ideas. Uh, is there any idea? Uh, it's okay. Look at the, the non tender or tender situation. Uh, Cause that will be coming up and the white Sox will have to make decisions that those decisions are due mid December by the winter meetings. Yeah. I think early December, early December, the white Sox have to decide on the tender or non tender before the arbitration. Instead of going through the whole list, which players do you see Jim as targets to be non tendered by the white Sox instead of getting new deals through arbitration? I think it's going to be Yolmer. You know, maybe they try to work out a deal with him to bring him back with a lower number, but you know, six million for a backup infielder is quite a lot, especially one who doesn't really offer anything offensively. And coming off the bench, you would want somebody who offers a specific offensive skill that uh, maybe can augment the lineup on a certain day. So, it seems like he would be a non-tender. Ryan Goins would be the obvious non-tender. Josh Osich is kind of interesting just because the way they used him. Uh, seems like he's more than a loogie. You know, might have some multi-inning possibilities to where they might have uh, use for him. Like, say, if they want to give up on Caleb Frere and want to have a little bit more left-handed help that's they feel better about, maybe Osich is their guy. Um, I, I was, I guess I was surprised or not surprised uh, um, when it comes to Alex Colomay. Like, his number is so large that if the White Sox were completely cold about it, didn't feel invested in him as a, um, I guess, as a as a symbol of their front office success because they did give up Omar Narvaez for him. You know, if he was just somebody who kind of showed up and he had that number, I think they might be inclined to non-tender him or try to work out some kind of alternative deal just because $10 million for a closer doesn't rack up a lot of strikeouts is a lot of money uh, that mm-hmm. could be spent elsewhere. And some, some off-season planners were willing to uh, non-tender him and, and look elsewhere. And I don't think it's a terrible idea. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was just, uh, I thought that number might be a bit higher, but it's not. Um, well, also I should say when it comes to uh, favorite moves, I think the one free agent I feel the most, uh, strongly about is Yasmani Grandal. I've talked about him before, just how he makes a lot of sense. And I think he was running about, about 50 plans in, and I think he's running about uh, a little bit more than 50% in the plans, which I like seeing. Um, and, uh, one of the questions, and I think it was little Jimmy asked this in Patreon. He asked, uh, what kind of deal you would expect? And I'm thinking, 
I guess I kind of set the Russell Martin deal as my upper echelon for what Grandal could get in the open market. How about you? Russell Martin deal? That was what, five years, 80 some million? Yeah, I think it was 580. I'm double checking that right now, but five years, 82. Okay, so five years, 82 million for Russell Martin. I have friends who work in the Milwaukee market, and it sounds out of Milwaukee. They do not want to let go of Yasmani Grandel. That's not good news, obviously, to White Sox fans, because there may be a deal with Grandel before free agency hits, because they have that mutual option, right? Grandel is slated to get like $18 million if he opts in and the Brewers can opt in on their side and they can continue the relationship. But it sounds like Milwaukee wants to approach a contract extension with Yasmani Grandel, a very similar situation to Jose Abreu. I did not have Yasmani Grandel in my plan because I feel like he's not going to make it to the open market. Now, if I am wrong, I would think... Like a three-year, fifty-four to sixty million dollar deal is where Grundell will end up. So, as a teaser to a column that's coming up next week of the free agent predictions, I'm going with three years, fifty-seven million to cut in between, and he gets paid nineteen million dollars over the next three seasons. Yeah, I could see him getting four for a lower average value sure like four for 16 million or 17 million yeah something like four for 65 or something yeah that seemed that sounds about right which is right in the white Sox wheelhouse so everyone that has grandel in your offseason plans i think that is also a very smart realistic target for the chicago white Sox because they have spent six years 68 million dollars on jose abreu and he was mostly unknown uh, before joining the chicago white Sox. You would think that for someone that has been a known and a proven commodity for his entire career in Major League Baseball and someone like Yasmani Grandel, that a four-year, $65 million deal would be something that they wouldn't blink at. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I think that's pretty spot on. So I think the floor, three years, $54 million to what you said about Russell Martin, five years, 82 million. I, I would be surprised if he got five years, Jim. Yeah. Uh, dedicated because he is a little bit on the older side and committing that many years to a catcher could be risky. Yeah, Martin was about the same age, but I think teams just aren't as willing to seed that structure. You know, they were, yeah, we're going to overpay a guy in the last year or two of his deal, but we're going to get production up front. I think right now they're just trying to have everything. They're trying to get the production up front. And not pay for it too much in the back end, except for the very, you know, I guess like the Anthony Rendon types or Garrett Cole. You know, they might get those contracts, but outside of the top, top tier, teams don't really want to go for that anymore. So I, I think five years is feels like too much at this point. Uh, the other question we got on uh, Patreon was about uh, J.D. Martinez. Hmm. And just about, you know, how you feel about his, I guess, dip in slugging. He, he went from slugging in the 600 last year to, you know, I think it was... 70 point drop or something like that, uh, year over year. Uh, and you know, whether it's a sign of decline or whether that's just, uh, you know, just, uh, I guess, normal fluctuation. Uh, and he showed up in a white Sox, I guess maybe the first official white Sox rumor of the year. Yes. So from W E I out of Boston, uh, which is the most popular Boston sports station. Think of it as six seventy the score for Boston. Uh, in the Sunday baseball column, because the Boston Red Sox are going to be introducing 
uh, their new think tank, let's just call it that, with the chief baseball officer and new GM this week. Uh, the first decision they have to make or will be made for them is J.D. Martinez. So Martinez can opt out of his contract. He has $62.5 million over the next three seasons with the Boston Red Sox. A, a nice little uh, boost that Scott Boris negotiated. If J.D. Martinez opts out, he gets $2.5 million from the Boston Red Sox. Must be nice. <laughs> However, what WEEI is reporting from their Sunday baseball column, quote, the, concession, the consensus continues to be that the most logical suitor for J.D. Martinez would be the Chicago White Sox, with the Texas Rangers another American League possibility. It's still difficult for many to envision a National League team jump into the fray, considering the 32-year-old's defensive limitations. But there are factors which potentially be dug into a bit more, and one of those factors is that Scott Boris has so many players that he represents that are free agents. Anthony Redon, Steven Strasburg, Garrett Cole, Nick Castellanos, Dallas Keuchel, Mike Moustakis. That if Martinez does hit free agency, there are some in the industry that believe that Boris will prioritize getting Martinez a new deal done on the earlier side. So sounds like if J.D. Martinez does opt out and if the White Sox are interested... The White Sox may have to work out something quickly because obviously Scott Boris wants to focus most of his attention on the three big fish, Anthony Rendon, Steven Strasburg, and Garrett Cole, Jim. Yeah, that strikes me as a little bit, I guess. Um, I, I guess I wouldn't connect the dots in that way, just Boris's history. Seems like he's willing to go <laughs> slow on everybody. And he's had these previous gluts before where he has controlled the market, and I don't remember him pushing one guy ahead of others. Um, and then I guess in this case, Martinez does not play the same position as the other ones. So maybe it's a case where he will have his own markets, but I think if he signs quick, it'll just because teams want him to, not because Boris is, uh, um, yeah, I, I guess Boris already knows his number that he's trying to beat with the Red Sox opt out or, or kind of knows what contract he wants and maybe feels like, uh, you know, there'll be a number of teams that will be interested and it'll be easier, more simple to work out because uh, he's not going to be trying to go for record-setting numbers. But uh, I, I don't know if the other free agents make that much of a difference. But to answer the question about slugging drop, he slugged 629 last year, slugged 557 this year, went from 43 homers to 36 homers, 37 doubles to 33 doubles, just a, kind of a drop across the board a little bit in power. But when it comes to the... Uh, performance of power hitters and, and the, I guess, performance of power hitters in this era with the rabbit ball and with everybody setting home run records, you really didn't see like a whole lot of difference or a whole lot of crazy numbers at the top of the home run uh, charts and then leaderboards. And it was more just a cumulative thing where guys hitting, you know, hit 10 homers now hit 23 or something like that. And, and lineups were just deeper with homers and more guys were poking them out. Uh, you didn't have anybody making a run at 60 homers, uh, 70 homers, uh, with the, it, it didn't affect like everybody equally, just kind of more uh, brought up the floor of homers versus uh, you know, push up the ceiling. So I think when it came comes to power hitters and the way these guys perform, you know, having Martinez go from 629 slugging to 557 doesn't really worry me too much. Uh, it's it's in line with the rest of his career. His career slugging percentage is 537. Uh, in his good Detroit days, he is around 530. So. It fits within the overall scope of his career. He he set more. Uh, he set a career high in walks with 72. The strikeouts came down. 
Other numbers are healthy. He bat over 300 for the fourth consecutive season. So everything else is there. I think when it comes to homers and the power, I think it's just more of a matter of, I would call it more maybe random distribution versus anything that's particularly, um, you know, noteworthy when it comes to his physical abilities. I could be wrong. You know, I didn't watch him every day, but based on the scope of his career and how it fits in with the rest of the league, um, it wouldn't surprise me that he had a drop in power when everybody else is, or I guess when most of the league is coming up just because it didn't really affect everybody equally. So instead of last off season where we had the dreams of Manny Machado and Bryce Harper being teased to us early in November. And obviously that carried all the way through February should White Sox fans' sights be more set on instead of Garrett Cole and Anthony Rendon and Steven Strasburg on Yes Monday Grandel and J.D. Martinez? Uh, I would say why not both? <laughs> when you just look at their... Uh, well, sure, yeah, why not yeah, both? But, but I'm, I'm saying, like, keeping track of the rumors and what's being said about the White Sox involvement, I just feel like if you hear things about the White Sox going in on J.D. Martinez and Yes Monday Grandel, to me, that carries more weight than those that plug the White Sox in as possible suitors for Garrett. Cole. Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. And yeah, I think I would agree too, just because last year you really didn't hear anything about anybody who wasn't either really cheap or really expensive. Um, they weren't interested in those mid grade um, free agents or trade targets who would improve the team to like 77 wins versus 71, uh, which I kind of disagree with, but, and, and I think we've seen with other teams and, and other success stories that, uh, you know, those moves, I think, do pay off more than, say, win projections account for, just when it comes to uh, just providing a watchable product that also doesn't hurt their bottom line. Uh, but yeah, it seems like this is the kind of year where they can upgrade multiple positions and in, uh, in the, with the intent to win this year um, and not two years from now. And, and you know, I, I assume they wouldn't, like, just completely, um, I guess handcuff themselves with, with major deals for, you know, 33, 34 year olds. But I think they can add somebody like Randall, somebody like Martinez, um, somebody like Odorizzi or Hamels or Bumgarner, you know, just all, all these kind of via free agent targets that have been thrown around and not really affect uh, what they're going to do in June, July, next uh, November and December. Uh, they have a lot of room to spend. And this is the year where they should be, addressing you know like right field they have really no immediate hope in right field so that seems obvious like they have to do something there and this would be the kind of year where they really can't be too picky about the perfect guy i think this is the case where uh uh perfect is the enemy of good and uh or and they know that and they can add accordingly as rick Hahn said during his postseason press conference right field dh two starting pitchers we'll see if he's able to convert and what type of targets that he's planning on to convert to fill in those roster holes and hopefully making the transition from rebuilder to contender for the Chicago White Sox in the 2020 season. A reminder, you could still complete your off-season plan project on SoxMachine.com. Also later this week, Patrick Nolan, P. Knowles, and I will be making our free agent predictions which you can also participate for a chance to win two tickets for the Saturday home opening weekend series as the White Sox will be playing the Kansas City Royals on March 28, 2020. All you have to do is just fill out your prediction sheet on SoxMachine.com when it becomes available 
And the person that has the most correct guesses out of the top 20 free agents will win those two tickets between the White Sox and Royals. Game two of the 162-game season on March 28th, 2020. So that completes as far as the offseason plan project review. So coming up next, it's time to answer your guys' questions in P.O. Sox. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries for nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans, listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, and helping support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And here to answer your questions this week is Jim Margulis. And Jim, the first question that we have comes from our quiz master, Ted Mulvey, who I thought admirably did a terrific job filling in for you last week. And Ted is asking on the very popular podcast, Effectively Wild, which I'm a big fan of and I highly recommend, they discussed on their most recent episode, and I was curious to hear your thoughts If there were a quote-unquote third-place game between the losers of the championship series, would you watch? Riffs on scheduling it, player interest slash health, possible CBA issues are welcomed. Yeah, I don't think I would, aside from like the first year where there's some curiosity about how it'll work and whether players will get up for it. But um, yeah, I just don't see, I guess where the interest would come from, from the players, from the fans. It doesn't seem like third place is something anybody would care about. It feels like a kind of a BP crosstown cup uh, kind of construction to where all of a sudden there's something to play for where there wasn't before. And it's trying, yeah, there's really, I guess, no natural force calling for it. And uh, I just don't know who would get up for it. Fans wise, players wise, especially like say if the, Players have been emptying the tanks and the and their managers have been emptying the benches and bullpens trying to win at all costs and then to have another game after that. Would anybody really feel like they needed to win it? I think that would be my major concern with that idea. Yeah, I'm not in favor. I say just give those teams the season off. All the focus should be on the World Series. And I feel like if you did have two upsets... I don't know ratings wise if the Yankees and Cardinals would do better than the Astros or Nationals this year. <laughs> That'd be pretty funny. But you do run that risk, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be pretty funny. Uh, just have the uh the markets kind of tell the story. Yeah, it's uh I, I didn't hear the idea myself. I I listened to I would say a number of I'm effectively wild uh episodes on every one, but uh it feels like a Sam Miller idea if I'm guessing right. Uh <laughs> I think so. Yeah, it would be it. Yeah, it would be. Uh, 
I would be curious to how about how it works, but I just don't see any natural forces making it compelling like after the yeah. first year. Yeah, that's I think that's a no go on our side, Ted. But thank you very much for asking the question. Our next question comes from Maker's Mark, and Maker's Mark is asking. Should Chris Bryan win his grievance against the Chicago Cubs? How then will the Chicago White Sox handle Luis Robert? Is he on the opening day roster? If Bryan should lose, what are the implications for the CBA slash potential player strike? How do you solve a problem like service time? Loaded question. Yeah, I think with uh, Bryant and he just, uh, I guess they held the grievance hearings and there's been testimony on both sides, and now I think they'll say it'll take months to decide. So how? I, I don't. I don't quite know. I'd love to know. I guess it's so few and far between that we don't really have a, a story about the inner workings of a grievance hearing. But um, when it comes to Bryant and how that might affect Luis Robert, I think that you know there are multiple ways Bryant could win. One is just with a, a settlement, like kind of a, a cash payout or something like that, and I don't think that would change the way the White Sox approach it. Now, if, if Bryant wins like the ultimate prize, which is to hit free agency a year earlier, um, that would change maybe the way the White Sox go about it. But that seems probably like a stretch. Um, and, and I wouldn't count on that outcome, but it's, I think from what I've seen a possibility, um, I think with Robert, they're going to wait to see. I think the first question is whether he can get through spring training fully intact, you know, given his health issues, his history of getting banged up possible that you know he plays in spring training slides awkwardly or makes a diving catch jams his thumb or wrist or ankle or something like that and has to miss a couple weeks and then all of a sudden that issue is taken care of for them so uh you know they can call him up in late april whenever after it gets a little bit of a runway in charlotte and nobody is really unhappy they're just that's the way it worked out uh and i think that's what they were waiting for this past season um, you know, Rick Hahn waited until the last possible moment to make it official. And I think that's probably because he might've had his fingers crossed, like hoping for some kind of mild injury issue at the very end of the season that would make playing in September a non-starter, but, uh, that didn't happen. So he just waited until the very end of the season to make up his mind with another reason. But, uh, so I think, you know, that's going to be the first thing, whether he's available and whether he's fully functional, I think the other question with a grievance and, and the likelihood is whether the White Sox have an alternative in center who's better than like Larry Garcia. Um, that doesn't seem likely, but say if they do have a, an outfield where all three players are major leaguers, that might be a bit harder to say that Robert has been unjustly held out of the majors because of uh, the roster. It seems like, you know, they could maybe make an argument that, uh, you know, they have a 25 man roster without him. And so uh, they want to finish you know, the refinement part of his game. Um, and then I think the third part would be the, and this is where the Cubs, I think, are maybe a little bit vulnerable, is just how quickly they called a Bryant after the deadline. I think it was two days after, and uh, Michael was starting ahead of him, and they really didn't have that kind of, uh, you know, Bryant was clearly, at the start of the season, the best third baseman they had by far. And then Mike Golt was there, and they said that Bryant had some work to do in, in uh, AAA, and then as soon as the deadline passed, uh, Bryant was up. And that makes it look really sketchy. So I think, uh, you know, if they can avoid, you know, and I, and I, I guess I don't like talking like about like this, you know, giving the White Sox like advice or, or trying to, you know, talk about how they can best, uh, kind of screw over Robert. But when it comes to just like the overall, I guess, comparisons, if they can, you know, have an outfield that doesn't include Robert and, and have a you know credible major league outfield and they don't like call him up within 48 hours of the deadline passing, 
Uh, they might not be like enough cases to where Bryant's case really instructs what the White Sox, um, you know, have done with Robert. So I guess that's the way I would look at it. When it comes to, I guess, the overall service time thing, I, I think the best solution I've seen is age-based free agency. Just having like the NHL, or, or I think it's NHL, where it's like 27, 28 hit free agency at that age. So it incentivizes uh, players to call up their top prospects as soon as they're ready. Um, that seems to be ultimately in the spirit of the game. Um, you know, it could affect some timetables to where if a player just got good, you know, feeling like you have to make a decision, like like a Whit Merrifield case, where all of a sudden he gets good at 27. What do you do with that? But, uh, you know, that'll happen. I guess there are always inconvenient ages for everybody. And I think it's ultimately in the game's interest, you know, when you watch like Juan Soto play and uh, Fernando Tatis, to see them come up and be excellent early and get fans excited. What I am most interested about this case is that through the grievance process, if the court were to come back and say that, yes, Chicago Cubs purposely prevented Chris Bryant from reaching free agency, if they say that this season becomes his arbitration for season and he will be granted free agency after the 2020 season, I don't know how that impacts the other teams in Major League Baseball, but all of a sudden for Chris Bryant to go from ARB 3 this season to ARB 4, which he may get up to $26 million in arbitration court, I wonder if that pushes the Cubs to trying to trade Chris Bryant with a year left on his deal before he becomes a free agent. Yeah, that's why it's going to be interesting to see how long it takes to decide it because the entire market could come and go by the time they get that number back and the, I guess, the um, the overall impact of this grievance hearing, you know, understanding it, like teams might have already acquired their third baseman or traded or, you know, they might not have the room to make for him. Yeah, We'll see what happens, but Makers Mark, you are asking some very relevant questions. And if Chris Bryan wins his grievance, good luck, Rick Hahn. Cause you're going to get a couple more coming your way. Yeah. I'm hoping it, do- yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it does just because it, it's, it seems like it's in the interest of fans to have players get called up when they deserve to be called up. Yes. So we'll see, we'll see on how the situation resolves and when it resolves. I just think it's kind of crazy for something that happened four years ago that it could take even more, a few more months to come up with a resolution to the grievance. Uh, just, I don't know. I don't, I, a lot of times don't understand the legal system at all. And this is one of those things that I don't understand why it takes so long, but regardless, Makers Mark, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Bill Wiggins and Bill is asking Jim, who do you think will be, and who would you like to see as the White Sox leadoff hitter in May of 2020? Well, you know, based on the talent on hand and I guess the, likelihood of the talent on hand or, you know, the kind of guys that they can acquire, the guys who are popular for right field and DH and maybe the most obvious upgrades. <laughs> I guess that's the one shortcoming of this roster. I mean, there are many shortcomings, but the plate discipline shortcoming is uh, is a pretty stark one. And I think that uh, makes it hard to have a true leadoff, you know, true second hitter type. Um, you know, even a guy like Starling Marte, who, you know, has decent on base percentage, but he doesn't really draw walks. He gets hit by a lot of pitches to, to support, I guess, supplement the amount of walks he draws, but you know, he's not an on base guy. None of these guys are really on base guys. Um, 
So I think, you know, if you're based on talent on hand and you don't count on them getting like a Charlie Blackman or somebody who's, I guess, more of a on-base guy at the top of the order, I would say maybe Tim Anderson against left-handed pitching. And depending on the amount of power hitters, like say if they do get Grandall and they do get J.D. Martinez and they have, you know, Stock or just whoever they get that they roll out like four to five run producers behind them, I could see Yohan Mankata being a decent leadoff guy just because I think when you don't have a true table setter type, they just want to get as many of the good hitters up at the front of the lineup as possible. So whether it's just kind of a jumble of Anderson and Mankata and Abreu and Martinez and Grandal and Jimenez and just, you know, if you have six hitters who are all run producers, but none of them are like the speedy on-base guys, then just pick a guy who I think would get on base more than most and uh, let him get on and run a bit. And I think Mankata fits that bill the best. I think when it comes to Nick Madrigal, um, we've talked about it before, I don't really count on him being a good on-base guy early just because I think he'll have to force pitchers to work around him. Um, I think he's going to hit 280, and I think the, uh, the, I guess the progression or whether progression arrives with him, it'll become, you know, whether 280 can turn to 310 and whether like a 310 on-base percentage can turn to 340. Uh, that's kind of how I'm looking at him right now, but I would rather put him at the bottom of the order as kind of a second leadoff type until he proves that he can punish pitchers. Same thing with Luis Robert, given his plate discipline. Don't really want to put that stress on him. I'd rather see them at the bottom of the order. So I think if you take those two guys out of the equations, probably Anderson and Moncada are the best types for it. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you have a question for a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, I will tell you to save it this time because, again, our next episodes are going to come out on November 18th and in mid-December after the winter meeting. So if there are any news that happens after the five-day period and free agency starts and you have questions about what is going on, our next two episodes will be coming out in mid-November and mid-December as we recap the general manager meetings and the winter meetings. However, for those that help support us on patreon.com slash socks machine, Jim will continue to still answer your PO socks questions, but he'll be doing it in writing form. So Jim, do you want to give more details on how they could submit their future PO socks questions? Yeah, it'll be the usual routine when it comes to questions. You know, on the weekend, I'll put a Patreon post up. Um, so check your email or check the Patreon page. Um, you're looking for questions and uh, just send them through that. And then uh, I will write a post on Socks Machine, put up the uh, Patreon button. And uh, those who are supporting Socks Machine can, uh, you know, uh, just uh, enter the credentials or you log in through Patreon, sync it up with your account and read it that way. And those who don't support might be encouraged to support in order to read it. That's the hope anyway. We greatly, greatly are appreciative of everyone's support throughout the 2019 season. Yes. Thank you guys so much for that. Even if you don't support us on Patreon, just listening to this show weekly and listening to the White Sox wake up calls on the other days, along with Sox switching live during the regular season. Uh, really appreciative. And we had over 500,000 listens this season again. Uh, so again, thank you guys so much for having us involved in pretty much your daily listening habits. So we are very appreciative of that. And if you do enjoy our work and you want more from us, again, go sign up at SoxMachine.com slash Patreon. And uh, yeah, you get additional benefits on helping support the site and the show with extra content. 
But that will do it for the last weekly edition of the Sox Machine podcast. Again, we're going to be taking a break. Our next episode will be coming out in in mid-November as we recap the general manager meetings. But if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show in a number of ways. One is through Apple Podcasts. Another is Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Is it time for a new heating and cooling system? Turn to the experts at Griffith Energy Services and Carrier today and get 0% financing for 18 months on a new heating and cooling system. Get the comfort you deserve from Griffith Energy Services and Carrier. Visit GriffithEnergyServices.com today for this and other exclusive offers. That's GriffithEnergyServices.com. License number MDHVACR01-2278. Griffith Energy Services. Doggone dependable. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.